Hello and welcome to this episode of Radio Free HPC. This is the show where we talk about supercomputing, high-performance computing, and other tech topics. I'm Dan Olds, joined as always by our co-hosts, Henry Newman from Seagate Government Solutions, Shaheen Khan from Orion X, and Jesse Lanham, our millennial standout co-host. Now let's get to the show. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's time for another scintillating episode of Radio Free HPC. I'm Dan Olds, joined by Jesse Lanham, newly minted co-host. Hey, Jesse, how's it going? Hello, hello. And Shaheen Khan, who's been around the block a few times. What's up, Shaheen? Hey, Dano. I love how you avoid the lull by just asking us to respond immediately. Yeah, but we're going to have a lull in here somewhere. Oh, that's coming. He's he's learning. (laughs) And we don't have Henry Newman today. Where's Henry? Henry is down overseeing the construction of his massive bunker down in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Very nice. Yes. Yes. 21. How how thick are the walls again? 21 inches of rammed earth and concrete. (laughs) It gets me every time. I love it. It truly is a bunker. We're not, we're not even joking. And how many more days before he moves? Oh, I want to say it's something like 282. Oh no, no. That's like. Is it less? It's less. To move, I think it's more like 70. Oh, is it that close? I think so. The they construction be, is rapidly progressing. They must be ramming the earth at a hellish rate down there. <laughs> I think the earth came pre-rammed. <laughs> He's getting some pre-rammed earth. Okay. But yeah, that's going to be something to behold, and we're going to try and do an off-site there at some point. But I don't know. I'm thinking that if you're just in another room, you'll never hear anybody in that house. I don't know if his interior walls are 21 inches. Probably not. I kind of hope so. <laughs> Just to stick with the vibe of It would be oddity. pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. And if everything were rammed earth and concrete, including his countertops. The and tables, the chairs. Tables, chairs. Yep. Rammed earth. <laughs> and concrete. 33,000 PSI and concrete over the top. It standardizes on a construction material. Let's just use that for everything. Yes. Yeah, I like the idea of that. It's a good move. That's what the IT departments do. Standardize on X. Exactly. The Legos, pretty much. But you know, one of the reasons why Henry is moving there is because of the weather. Yes. The horrible, brutal weather in Minnesota has done him in. After years of eroding his soul, he's moving down to the sun. The thing is, is that extreme weather can affect nearly everybody in every place. (laughs) No one is safe. And that takes us, that's a brilliant segue to take us to our topic. Really nicely done. It was a great segue. What we're going to talk about a bit today is how researchers are using supercomputers to apply deep learning to extreme weather. And the researchers specifically are from Rice University, working with the Texas Advanced Computing Center, or TAC, to those of us in the club. And what they're doing is approaching extreme weather a completely different way by essentially using deep learning to look at weather conditions, specific weather conditions before, and matching them up to what we can expect today. See, there's See, the that's wall. Our that's our yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> I knew we were going to have one. That was it right there. What is the current process for looking at weather, and how is this particularly different? Current process, from what I know, is you turn on the TV at like 11, <laughs> and about 11.15, they start to tell you, no, it's you gather all sorts of sensor data, automated data, stuff like that. You pull it together, you crunch it. And that will spit out what your weather forecast is. They look at data from, of course, 
current conditions, but also from recent past conditions, but they don't go back to the beginning of recorded weather time and compare the conditions with extreme weather conditions from then. Oh, okay. So this seems to be a little bit of a back to the future because in the way back, you just looked out the window and he said, it looks like it's going to snow tomorrow. But then you probably couldn't guess what it was going to do a week out. Yeah. But if you had enough data and if you had all these patterns recorded and you could have access to a couple of supercomputers, which they do with TAC and mm -hmm. PSC, they're using both of those. Now you can feed all of that in there and basically say, I've seen this movie before and last time these conditions were in this particular situation. Exactly. The weather ended up being like this. But using it to spot the extremes. Well, yeah, let's talk about the extreme part. Are they focused on extreme weather because that's really what's interesting? Because if it's not extreme, then well, yeah, it's why just... do I need to go through? <laughs> well, I think they're looking at the idea of using advanced warning yes. for things like Hurricane Harvey was one of the things that was mentioned. The failure to accurately predict that. But heat waves and cold spell. Is it because the model is good for that? Or is it because the use case is interesting that way? And the model could also predict well, the weather is just going to be fine tomorrow. I bet it's the latter. I think it's the model. Yeah. Based on the interview. I would think that too. I think they fed it extreme weather data. So obviously it's good for extreme mm. data. But I think the model itself probably doesn't know any different. Yeah. yeah. If you fed it mild weather data, it just learned that. Yeah, I don't know, though, when you think about how much data would have to go in for all weather, mild, extreme, somewhere in the middle, I don't know if you've got the computer power to do that. Mm. I mean, that's an awful, awful lot of data and an awful lot of crunching. Well, like they're saying. Because it, it takes big supercomputers, all they can do to get just a 10-day forecast that's accurate out. It all depends on the fidelity that you want, right? how many meters you want in your view. Now, you could predict it for a very small area, I guess, or a very large area in general. But I think that that's another reason why they're looking at just the extremes. Yeah, and that's why they have to use TAC and PSC to do this. Yeah, their yes. paper, going back to a previous thing we're talking about, says that the reason that they did this was for providing early warnings right. for extreme weather. Right. That's actually very valuable yeah. information to have for the commodities market and stuff. It's a good use case because as much as climate is changing, you got a vast body of data you can take advantage of. I think it's a very good use case. Yeah. And I think that AI is the right tool to use. I'm kind of surprised that it's February 2020 before we've actually heard about this. Yeah, that's sort of why I asked in the beginning. I was like, do we not already do this? It's really cool, but it also seems like it should have been on the radar, <laughs> pun intended, <laughs> earlier. Yeah, nicely done. Thank you. <laughs> Transition. Yeah. I think this is a great thing. And I'm looking at this and they were using a relatively small subset of atmospheric circulation data at a fixed altitude. I think that when this opens up, it's going to be much more valuable when you start looking at different altitudes and different temperatures, et cetera, et cetera, because that's the kind of stuff that generates tornadoes and things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this will bear some watching, I think. Interesting. Good use case. Yes. Yes. Very good. And we'll have a link here so you can go read the article, and that's got a link to a paper. Yeah, we should. For those the paper's really interesting to read. Yes, very good paper, well written, good margins, nice use of fonts. <laughs> I'm a fan. Design and content a plus. <laughs> yes, I give that paper an A plus. So you don't read papers if it's not pleasant to the eye. Exactly. Yeah, and I like to see a paper that's got some nice illustrations in it, 
Good labeling of the graphs is important to me, of the axes. Sometimes that's not understandable. No, you know, these are the high standards to which you've- I've got one standard. And if I can print it in black and white, because color printing for a student is way more expensive. If your graphs don't make sense when I print it in black and white, I'm not interested. Absolutely. Very good point. Hmm. That was one of our design criteria way back, oh. that everything we made had to be faxable, hmm. not just printable black and white. Ah. So that meant dark background was out because it would just burn through your ink on the fax machine. Yeah, it needs to be photocopyable as well. Yes. Back then. Mm -hmm. Grayscale. Yes. So moving along. Oh, they have a really nice graphic. Sorry. <laughs> We're not moving along. I just saw this. They have a very, very nice graphic about how this actually works at the end of their paper. Does it say anything in there how much data they actually use that you saw? No, not in this lovely little graphic. Okay. That would be interesting. It would be. They had accuracy of 69, 75%, one to five days ahead, which not bad. Well, I think in the weather world, if you're better than 50%, you're already ahead. <laughs> That's good enough to be ahead of the game. Very well. Good work by these folks. So, moving along now that we've chewed all the meat off of that particular bone. We have another edition of Jesse Lanham's Things You Think You Know But Maybe Don't. Correct. Jesse? So this week's topic is something that a lot of hardcore HPCers know the answer to, but those of us coming in sit there in the back and are like, mm, I really want to ask this, but no, this seems like something everybody already knows. Why were the old Cray computers circular? Or, well, horseshoe-shaped, specifically. Yeah, not a full circle. I have one answer, but Shaheen, I think you probably have others. Go ahead. Well, our tradition is for you to kind of take the, <laughs> take the easy answer. Yeah, let me, <laughs> yeah. let me go ahead and give you the easy answer, Jesse. Uh, these were handmade, and wire length was very important because these things were slow enough that the amount of time it took the signal to get along the wire would have a significant impact on performance. Mm. And so these things, you're putting them in a design that gets them as close together as possible. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah, Jesse, that's really it. The idea was that all these boards needed to communicate together. And if you fan them out and create a bigger C and a little C, the little C would be the closest distance between them. Now, you needed a little bit of a space there because somebody had to be able to get in and actually... So it couldn't be a full circle then. The boards are extending out from the inner C, mm. so you were always going to get a fan out. Yeah. But it was better than having a straight back end where the distance between two adjacent boards would be really small, but from one end to the other one mm. was not going to be the same. So this made sure that the distances are minimized. So distances are minimized, but uniform. Minimized uniform, but also not zero. You had to have some room in there. Do we know how small the smallest gap was? Uh, we do, but I don't have it handy. It's a pretty small, it's a pretty small thing. So in fact, the only people who could get in there were those who were physically able to get in there. Now, there's also a story that I actually tell as a branding story that Seymour Cray was the founder of the company. The name of the company was Cray. The name of the product was Cray. And the product actually spelled C, which is his initial. <laughs> so that is a perfect example of aligned branding. And as a startup, that's really smart because it reinforces all of your branding money onto the same name, Cray, Cray, Cray. And indeed, to this day, it's one of the highest valued 
brands in the computing world, if you ask me. <laughs> right. Very cool. That, that's cool. I, I like it. It has a technical reason and it's neat. Very cool. Perfect. That's right. There's another reason put forward that it made room for liquid cooling pipes to keep the modules oh. operating. Yes. Now that became part of the tower itself and the seats had the pumps and the power supplies. Oh, okay. Then maintenance could reach in. That's why the donut hole had to be there. Got it. There's a whole manual of them online somewhere. I think at least the Cray XMP, if not Cray 1. Okay. That's definitely something I'm probably going to go pull up. <laughs> <laughs> now, there was an IO tower that was basically a wedge of the pie that extended outside of the mm. machine and had a big connection kind of halfway between the towers as a sky bridge between the two. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Okay. Okay. I think that was the SSD for the XMP, if I'm not mistaken. But it was beautiful. It had a definite flair to it. Oh, man, yeah. Which all the computers back there kind of did. Cray was Apple before there was Apple. Hmm. Everything they did was really so... The industrial design was so beautiful. Yeah, very nice. Cool. So you go pull up some pictures, take a look at that, pull up some manuals. We'll test you on it next week. <laughs> some light reading. Some light reading. And... I know you all hear that sound in the background. That means it's time for our catch of the week. What do you got, Jesse? So I have an article in Wired that is talking about how when it comes to the U.S. needing to overcome cyber problems, that we should look to Estonia and what they have done. So some of the implementations that the writer points out is the fact that Estonia implemented this volunteer cyber force. They put in mandatory cyber classes in schools, and they talk about how the role of leadership in Estonia into spearheading these efforts was super enthusiastic and really valued it as an important thing. And so I don't necessarily know if I agree or disagree with mirroring Estonia, but it's definitely an interesting thought exercise. So is it is it cyber vigilantes then? No, they're legit. They're vetted. Okay, but they're amateurs. But they're amateurs. But I can't. I can't decide based just on this short article if it's similar to what the United States Marine Corps is trying to do with its cyber auxiliary force. I mean, they are literally crowdsourcing their cybersecurity. Estonia or mm, Estonia. the Marine Corps? Oh, Estonia. From what it seemed like, I need to do more like reading into this just from what I saw off of Wired, but. It looks like, yeah, it's a volunteer force. But, you know, they are doing a bunch of really interesting things, Estonia. Yeah. They also famously had the digital citizenship program some years ago. Oh, that's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And the article kind of talks about how their approach to cybersecurity was going back to why the good leadership was important, viewing it as the starter level people's online hygiene and their habits and the digital citizenship type of deal. But the thing that I think prompted all this is that they had some huge cyber attacks yeah, in 2007 mm -hmm. and they got pounded really hard. Yeah. And then they figured out, okay, what are the ways that we can prevent this from happening in the future? Yeah. So the article is looking at, since we haven't had the same level of Estonian attack, what can we learn from the folks that have and so that we're ready should that come? Very Excellent. cool. Okay. What do you got, Shaheen? What washed up in your nasty, horrible, smelly net this week? Oh, I have wonderful, very, very prime, prime fish. So the name I'd like you to remember is Justine Hopped, who is a researcher, I believe, out on the East Coast. But she came up with a series of stories this past couple of weeks that I, I love every one of them. 
So first off, she built a cell phone that has a rotary dialer right on top of it. Mm. And of course, as the article says in Gizmodo, it says there's an entire generation that probably won't be able to make sense of Hop's rotary cell phone (laughs) or why it has a bizarre circular wheel affixed to the top. (laughs) But yes, everybody, there used to be a time when you had to go all around the circle and you avoided numbers that had a lot of zeros in them. Yes. Because they were hard to dial. So there is an article about that rotary cell phone that is a rotary thing slapped on top. But that is not all. She and her husband decided that now was not a bad time to form a robotics company that they'd always planned to do. But the attention for this makes it an opportune moment. So go and check out skiesedge.us, S-K-Y-S-E-D-G-E.us. Mm-hmm. That's their robotics company. It's using their robot operating system, ROS. Go on Wikipedia and figure that out if you haven't. But there's a whole bunch of tool sets that have been combined starting back in 2007 and growing to now. But love everything she's done and deserves kudos. So thank you. Very nice. Yeah, that's cool. Very nice. I also feel the need to point out that I did have a toy rotary phone on a string. So this generation still knows what those are. (laughs) Yes, true. But I would imagine that that toy is probably not available anymore. Yeah, I don't know. If there is demand for it. We shall see. But I know what you're talking about. Yeah, this is the like caveat for all the people that are like, oh, she doesn't know what a cassette is. And you're like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It is beautiful. Even though it's handmade, it looks beautiful. It actually looks like a little router because it's got all these green lights on the side. Yeah, it's really neat. It definitely fits a good sci-fi movie. It is. That's right. Very nice. Well, I've got an interesting case here. A guy was put into prison for murder basically on DNA evidence, although the DNA was under the murderee's fingernails and had mixes of his own and somebody else's DNA. And essentially what the circumstantial evidence led them to believe it was him He didn't have a good alibi or one that the jury believed. And the DNA analysis at the time, this was 2011, basically said, well, we can't exclude him. Oh, really? Yeah. So they've gone back, the Innocence Project, and they ran the DNA through a company called Cybergenetics. And they've punched it through something like 170,000 lines of statistical algorithmic code to untangle the DNA mixtures. And what they found out through this is that this guy was innocent because his DNA absolutely could not have been a piece of this. So that's great. Hmm. Very cool. However, there's more to the story. The rest of the story is that there's controversy now that this is not open source software. This is closed source proprietary software. Basically, it looks like a black box to everybody that's not working on it. And how can that be trusted in these types of cases? People are pushing that this needs to be open source, but the company is saying this is a trade secret that has to be protected because it's a highly competitive environment. Mm, That's tricky. Mm. Interesting. Well, you know, so far the thought has been that this stuff is conclusive and now it turns out it's not conclusive. Yes. As recently as 2011. Wow. That's not even so recent. No. So I thought that was an interesting story and I think we're going to hear more along these lines. Yeah. There are like two or three different dimensions here. The proprietariness of the algorithm. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, I'm still processing the story. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. I think that there's going to have to be open source stuff that does this. Yeah, I agree. Can't be a black box. If you're a listener and this sounds like your thing, have at it. (laughs) Or if you're a listener in prison. (laughs) Also. (laughs) There might be hope. Yeah. But really, when you got a piece of software that's 
performing an important function like this, you want to know how it did it. Mm -hmm. right? yes. And I think AI is all over this attribute. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, it's a great story, Danu, but I don't know how we're going to get out of this and get to the next segment on our show. Let's think about it. If you do the crime, you got to do the time. And thank you for spending time <laughs> but... with us here on. <laughs> <laughs> actually, that, that was, was excellent. excellent. This is going to be the new game is like somebody says the first half of the closing and then whoever else just has to come up with how we're going to end. It in. <laughs> on that note, let's go ahead and call this an episode of Radio Free HPC. Thank all of you out there for listening. Please give us a tweet. We are at Radio Free HPC. Or you can drop us an email, and that's podcast at Radio Free HPC. Thank you very much, and bye-bye. Boom. Oh, I like that McLaughlin. Tom McLaughlin throwback. McLaughlin, yeah. bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye-bye. Yep. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free HPC. And as a quick note, the views and opinions of Henry Newman are his and do not reflect any policy or position of Seagate Government Solutions or Seagate Technology. Thank you for listening. <laughs>